This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. And not just any old Sunday morning. Today is Super Bowl 50, right here on CBS. From Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, California, it's the Denver Broncos versus the Carolina Panthers to decide the championship of the National Football League. The players are pumped up. The balls will be very carefully pumped up. And as usual, the most pumped up of all, as Susan Spencer will report, are the fans. Today is our day. Is there anything more delightfully crazed than a football fan? Just ask the guys who lug their giant pizza oven to the parking lot for every home game. Awesome. Would you consider this an obsession? <laughs> an obsession? What do you think? Is it an obsession? Yeah, we're pretty passionate about it. I would say, I say it's an obsession. What makes diehard sports fans so diehard? Ahead on Super Bowl Sunday. The call for the envelope, please, goes out at the Academy Awards three weeks from tonight. And Leslie Stahl has been talking to the man behind one of this year's most nominated films. When you're a poor kid from a poor family, and when a priest pays attention to you, it's a big deal. How do you say no to God? Coming up on Sunday morning, Spotlight. Spotlight. Just the tip line. You think he's got something? It's been called the best movie about journalism since all the president's men. And it's the work of Tom McCarthy. Actor, writer, director, Jersey boy, 
an Oscar nominee. <laughs> then it's on to an established star on TV, in the movies, and on Broadway. His name is Jeff Daniels. And this morning, he'll visit with our Anthony Mason. I'm sorry, what's your name again? Teddy. Jeff Daniels has been everywhere on screen recently. But only a few years ago, he thought his career was over. Well, I wanted to quit before I was fired or let go or dismissed or over. Then came the newsroom. It's going to come down, as it always does, to who shows up. And ever since, the actor's been singing a different tune. Jeff Daniels, ahead on Sunday morning. The Super Bowls, our Seth Doan will be showing us this morning, have nothing at all to do with football. I pushed the wrong button, I got sprayed. There are probably more buttons on a Japanese toilet than you could ever imagine needing, at least until you try one. When I used it for the first time, I was a little caught off guard by it, but after I got to use it, the more I used it, the more I liked it. The elaborate and high-tech world of Japanese toilets. Later on Sunday morning. Anna Werner takes in some Super Bowl commercials. Mo Rocca analyzes real Panthers and Broncos in a matchup. David Pogue talks about the TED Talks. Connor Knighton sets out on a journey down the National Parks Trail. And more. Ahead. The Boston priest molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. Director and actor Tom McCarthy on his Oscar-nominated film, Spotlight. But first, <laughs> just what drives the diehard football fan. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Today is the day for the diehards. Diehard football fans will be watching every second of Super Bowl 50 later today here on CBS. And mingling with them for our cover story is where you'll find Susan Spencer. Coach Bill Belichick. And Love him or hate him, until the clock runs out on today's big game, the New England Patriots are still the reigning Super Bowl champions. And diehard fan Peter Carbone has been fired up all season. Oh, Literally, fired up. I'm usually up around four, make a cup of coffee, I light a cigar, and uh, once the oven's going, I'm happy. That's a 6,000-pound wood-burning pizza oven emblazoned with the logo of his beloved Patriots. Now we'll get the oven floor between 650 and 800 degrees. Should be perfect. Perfect and portable. For five years, Carbone and his buddy, Rich Caterano, have lugged their lit oven to every Patriots game at Gillette Stadium, which is not exactly down the block. It's about 60 miles, I think. 60 miles? Yeah. You do this for every home game? Yes, in the playoff games, yeah. <laughs> like obsessed mailmen, nothing deters them from their appointed rounds. Now, it is pouring outside. It's 38 degrees. Does that put a damper on this at all? We're actually pleased with the weather today because <laughs> the it wind. could be a lot worse. <laughs> and for them, nothing's better than this party in the parking lot. Game? What game? They've still got four hours to kill. Am I an honorary fan? Yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> We're starting with chicken wings. Okay. Pizza throughout the day. Yeah. We have a raw bar, uh -huh. so we're going to be doing some fresh shucked oysters, lobster, shrimp. 
I have this feeling that you go through your week being normal, successful businessmen, and then on the weekends, bleh. <laughs> on the weekends, all hell breaks yeah. loose. <laughs> Look at that, awesome. Start by just sort of ticking off for me what you see as the traits of the real diehard sports fan. Tribal animal subconscious, instinctive tribal animal. Author David Ropeek is one of those animals. Not a conscious thinking, reasoning, oh, aren't we smart human. And he's written about this tribal behavior. We met him at a New York sports bar, of course. He says rooting for a team is deeply rooted. No, this is really powerful stuff. We do this in lots of walks of life, by the way. What kind of a fan are you? Uh, I can be rabid. Seeking out others who think as we do is just part of the survival instinct. Gender, location, politics, values, religion, we identify with a lot of tribes, but not so obviously. Sports? Team colors, warriors, songs, history, tradition, we won. The drive! And scientific research shows that winning can affect fans physically, too. Today is not even couch potatoes are immune. When our team is doing well during the game, our hormone levels, particularly testosterone, go up. And if our team loses, they go down. There's deep biological stuff going, and that affects mood. In case you're wondering what a spike in testosterone looks like, this is it. These are New England Patriots fans watching their team win the Super Bowl last year their fourth win since 2002. But some 300 miles to the south, here outside Lincoln Financial Field, where the Philadelphia Eagles play, it is a totally different scene. As in, there is no scene. In 50 years, the Eagles have made it to the Super Bowl a grand total of two times. And both times, sadly, they've lost. How deep is your love for the Philadelphia Eagles? Is a deep, abiding, <laughs> unconditional love. So Sunday isn't a normal day for me during the football season. But if attorney Ellen Centaur calls it an abusive relationship, given the Eagles' history. What is game day like for you? Well, there's a lot of hope in the morning. <laughs> really a lot of hope. <laughs> then at the end of the day, I find myself at the bottom of a bag of Cheetos. Like, where did my day go? What's wrong with my life? Because and yet, she seems happy being unhappy. What about switching to some other team that wins occasionally? <laughs> it sounds reasonable when you say it that way. You can't even never, get your head around never. it. Never. I couldn't look myself in the mirror. No. When she to. looks in the mirror on game day, she sees a grown woman decked out head to toe in Eagles earrings, an Eagles hair scrunchie from high school, and an Eagles jersey that she's been wearing since her daughter Scout was born 11 years ago. There was a game that night. I was fortunate enough to have a hospital that was accommodating and had a TV in the room so we could watch the game while she was being born. You didn't. <laughs> Does your daughter realize that she was competing with the Eagles that day? She does. She has some resentment there. Today, Scout seems philosophical. What happens on game day? She watches the Eagles and then they lose. <laughs> That's it? What kind of mood is she in? She's not in a good mood. She has lots of company. A new CBS News poll finds nearly four out of ten sports fans say they too get depressed when their team loses. 
At least Ellen can turn to her therapist husband, Anthony Centaur. Let's go watch the Eagles lose. Who takes sports fan depression quite seriously. I was in session with a client and he was telling me that his hockey team had lost the night before. And that since then, he had no appetite and he felt all around miserable and sad. Because his hockey team lost. Because his hockey team lost. But uh, after that day, I started seeing it more often. He says fans generally recover in a few days or weeks, and some just resort to denial. Author David Ropeek. Research shows that after your team does well, you say, we won, first person. We won the championship. You watch, dude. And if they lose, statistically, a higher percentage will turn to the third person. They're losers, and that ain't me. So this is Super Bowl Sunday. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for diehard fans? Half of them are going to lose. One thing about these games is they're really emotionally charged. Mm -hmm. The networks do a great job of making every one of these games seem like the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. (laughs) But even if your team loses, 99.9% of the things in your life are still unchanged, and it's going to be okay. (laughs) And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. February 7th, 2009, seven years ago today. The date aerospace scientist Jack Cover died at the age of 88. Now, even if you don't know his name, you surely know the name of his invention. It's an acronym inspired by the science fiction story Tom Swift and his electric rifle, which, with a tweak, becomes the word taser. The taser applies an electric shock in one of two ways either through direct contact with the skin or at a distance through a pair of wired darts fired by compressed air. The idea of using electricity to incapacitate uh, at its core is, is frankly a, a beautiful and simplistic idea. Rick Smith and his brother Tom talked with David Martin for a 60 Minutes story back in 2011. They founded Taser International in 1993 after acquiring the rights to Cover's invention. They even videotaped taser tests they did on themselves. He's going to tase a 72-year-old woman. Videos of taser use on unwilling subjects have become YouTube sensations, including this one of a protester at a John Kerry event. Don't tase me, bro! At the University of Florida in 2007. And the controversy goes on. Amnesty International has recorded well over 500 deaths from U.S. police taser use since 2001, a figure the manufacturer and its defenders vigorously dispute. They argue that most of the deaths can be blamed on other causes, such as drug use or other factors. And with very rare exceptions, lawsuits brought by taser victims or their families lose in court. With police body cameras, now an expanding part of its product line, Taser International reported some $50 million in sales for the third quarter of last year. As co-founder Tom Smith told 60 Minutes back in 2011. We believe in what we are doing. We have changed the world. Very few people can say that. Coming up, Super Bowl contenders, advertising division. A new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. So which commercials will score big tonight? 
Here's Hannah Werner. They're the ads that made Betty White a football player. You're playing like Betty White out there. That's not what your girlfriend said. Baby. Peter, hit me in the nose with a football. I can't go to the dance like this. And cast bad boy actor Danny Trejo as Marsha Brady. Better? Better. Snickers scored big with viewers with those spots, but it's Super Bowl time again. And the problem for the brand is, how do you raise the bar? That's the challenge for Peter Kane, who directs the Snickers campaign at ad agency BBDO. People want something new, like they don't want the same old thing. So we have to kind of work within the structure we have, but try to bring it to life in new and different and surprising ways. This year's spot is different for sure. That's actor Willem Dafoe in a dress as Marilyn Monroe. Who's the genius who puts a girl in heels on a subway grate? As we saw on the set a few weeks back, Kane and crew pumped things up by casting another familiar face. Did we rap? Is anybody there? Eugene Levy, here ad-libbing lines as the prop guy running the wind fan under Defoe's Marilyn. How many shots does it take to blow some air up a dress? It's funny to see him in the dress. It's just, on the surface, just kind of funny. I hope so. It better be funny. Snickers' entire brand strategy is riding on this one ad campaign. So how many times will this ad replay in a year? Oh, thousands. Allison Miazga Bedrick is marketing director for Snickers. She admits getting noticed via the Super Bowl is expensive, although she won't say how expensive. Why is it worth it? Uh, I think because of the, the eyeballs and, and the impressions um, and, and everything that comes along with it. So the fact that we're sitting here talking about it is exactly that. It's not just the 30 seconds that you're paying for, you're paying for everything that surrounds it. Which is why Peter Kane and his team spend weeks in an edit room. Oh, who are they kidding? Nobody wants to see this. Morons. It's the Super Bowl, right? I mean, do you feel any pressure? Yes. <laughs> Lots yeah. of pressure. Yes. When it's Super Bowl, it's it's like all eyes are on it. You know, it's 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 the one time like my high school friends care what I'm doing. So <laughs> the one time. Yeah. Can I have a meal combo? Super Bowl ads didn't always carry this weight, but one commercial changed everything. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. Suddenly, Super Bowl commercials became must-see TV, says former New York Times ad columnist Stuart Elliott. The Apple ad set off the idea that if you would pay attention to the commercials and stop talking and stop eating and stop running to the bathroom or the kitchen, that you will be rewarded with new, funny, different, interesting, heartwarming, schmaltzy, hilarious, surprising commercials. Which brought us the frogs, the dancing monkey, let's kick some bud, the bud bowl, and mini Darth Vader. Even this parody of a Super Bowl ad. Sorry, Mr. Reynolds. Hey, that bear can talk. Most of those commercials were created by big ad agencies. But for the 10th year, the little guy gets a shot with the Doritos 
trash the Super Bowl contest. This year, 5,000 people submitted their own homemade ads in hopes of making the cut. So this is literally where you put this together, just on yeah. your computer at home. This right? is where it all happened. Aspiring filmmaker Jacob yeah. Chase is one of three finalists this year with this ad okay, featuring, in a starring role, his dog, Miz. How much did this cost to put together? Um, you know, honestly, we spent altogether about $1,000. Um, that was it? It was really just like my closest friends and family, and I think that's how we were able to make it. The winner, who gets a million bucks, will be revealed during the game. So Chase admits, like many of us, he'll only be watching for the commercials. Do you even know who's playing? Uh, do I know who's playing? Honestly, uh, it's, <laughs> I know the Broncos are playing, right? That's one. <laughs> uh, that's embarrassing. How does this happen? How do so many good people uh, allow this to happen? We turn our studio spotlight Marker. on Spotlight Director Tom McCarthy next. Show me the church manipulated the system so that these guys wouldn't have to face charges. Show me they put those same priests back into parishes time and time again. Show me this was systemic, that it came from the top down. That's Liev Schreiber playing the editor of the Boston Globe in the Oscar-nominated film Spotlight. The movie has six chances to win when the call goes out for the envelope, please, in three weeks' time. Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes talks with the movie's director, Tom McCarthy. The beige telegram. It was a big day for Tom McCarthy. Oh, my gosh. Did you... A day last month when he celebrated all the Oscar nominations for his film, Spotlight. Congrats. Congrats. This is his family gathered at his mom's home in New Jersey. Just another morning with a camera crew. This happened just this morning. Just this morning, yeah, hours ago. The nominees are... They had good reason to be happy. Tom McCarthy for Spotlight. Tom McCarthy. Spotlight. Spotlight. Six good reasons. And finally, the Best Picture nominees. Spotlight. On top of Best Picture, McCarthy was nominated for co-writing the screenplay and directing the film. Why do you think it struck such a chord? It, it doesn't have any shooting, it doesn't have any violence, it doesn't have one single love scene. No, no. There aren't monsters. No. There well, there are monsters there of sorts. The Boston priests molested kids in six different parishes over the last 30 years. The church found out about it and did nothing. It's the true story of how reporters at the Boston Globe uncovered the scandal of Catholic priests preying on young children. When you're a poor kid from a poor family, and when a priest pays attention to you, it's a big deal. How do you say no to God? Spotlight. This is the tip line. You think he's got something? I want to keep digging. The story was broken by the Spotlight Investigative Unit of the Globe. In good, old-fashioned, shoe-leather style, they knocked on doors. Do you remember his name? Work the, the phones. Church directories, it's every priest in Massachusetts, what parish they're assigned to. Dug through yeah, dusty archives. We really kind of geeked out on, on the specifics of it, on the details, to good, solid investigative reporting. We shot in the Boston Globe Library, which looks exactly like that, and going through the old clips and pulling clips and paper, 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 paper. So we can find out where any priest is at any given year? Yeah, I got him here. At Down in the bowels of the globe, yeah. looking at... Directories published by the Catholic Church. 
and then devising a way to work backwards from them to locate priests. And as they said, it was very tedious and hellish work that they had to, they had to do, but it was it proved incredibly fruitful. Oh, yeah. Boots on the ground journalism. To write the screenplay, McCarthy put his own boots on the ground for three years, traveling to Boston with his co-writer Josh Singer, interviewing everyone involved in the original 2001 investigation that won the Boston Globe a Pulitzer Prize. You really did do reporting. You did an investigative reporting job to write the screenplay. We did. There was really, I mean, because we really had no source material, which is important to remember. The reporters hadn't written a book about their investigation. Right. So we had nowhere to go. Like to. all the president's men. Oh, you didn't boy. have the blueprint. Yeah. I'm still angry at those guys for not doing it. It would have made the job a lot easier. We could turn to chapter 20. Original documents, contemporaneous emails. The real head of the spotlight team, Walter Robinson, says McCarthy was as thorough as a star reporter. They did. I swear to God, some days, I think, as much or more research about what we did than we actually did back in 2001. <laughs> it was exciting, and it was surprising, and we thought, wow, this, this little bit of buzz we're feeling right now, this is what reporters feel. He kept reams of his research in a cramped, unglamorous office on the Lower East Side of New York, including transcripts of interviews he conducted with survivors. Do not call them victims. That's something that they corrected us on early on. They like to be called yeah, survivors. Yeah, like, because the victims are the ones that don't survive. Survivor Joe Crowley was raped by a priest when he was 15 years old. It was one of those interviews that as I was getting ready to go downstairs and meet with him, I started getting nervous. Really? You know, I just didn't know what to expect. In the interview, Tom relaxed Crowley by asking about his first meeting with Spotlight reporter Sasha Pfeiffer. Talking about this stuff with someone you've never met before, so the more I told her, the more questions she had. Can you tell me specifically what happened? Specifically, he molested me. The Spotlight investigation ultimately exposed more than 200 priests as molesters and led to the resignation of the cardinal in charge of the Boston Archdiocese. Mark my words, Mr. Resendez. If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse one. The movie suggests that plenty of people in Boston knew something terrible was going on and did nothing. They knew and they let it happen to kids, okay? It could have been you, it could have been me, it could have been any of us. Everybody conspired, not just the church, the community, because right. people knew. Uh, lawyers knew. Yeah, families knew, parishioners knew, teachers knew, and I think this is what our movie's about. To ask the questions, what did we know? Why did it take us so long to stand up and say something? Look, I'm a big fan of the Catholic community. My family's very Catholic. I'm very connected to the church. The Catholic church has a lot of wonderful things. And I think the question is, how does this happen? How do so many good people uh, allow this to happen? You were really raised in the church. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tom describes himself as a you lapsed Catholic. Actually, that's me getting First Communion. I think that's just me as, a, as an altar boy leading a procession. But his mom, Carol McCarthy, goes to Mass every Sunday. Yeah. Look at you. Yeah. Yeah. We, you I used to call to that, that my Pope dress. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was just perfect for that occasion. Tom made a special trip home to tell his mother what he was working on. Did you try to discourage it? No, I didn't discourage him. I just said, I hope you think about it a long time. I think it was a little bit of a, a worry for me in the beginning. And when you finally saw the movie? I was excited to see it. I watched it and it was very uncomfortable for some reason. I thought, wow, 
She didn't warm to the movie until... Your local parish priest went to see it. He did, and he was very, uh, very helpful because he said it was very well done. So I felt good about that. Most of McCarthy's earlier films were easier for his mom to love. Oh, look at this one. Oh, yeah. You with Peter Dinklage. Oh, right. That's on set of The Station Agent. Man, I haven't seen that picture with a pony. Kind of where it all began. The Station Agent, back in 2003, was McCarthy's first film as a writer and director. For his friend Peter Dinklage, now star of Game of Thrones, it was his breakthrough role. After that, McCarthy co-wrote Up. So long, boys! Stay in this, okay? This is your place. Wrote and directed Win-Win. But if you have a feeling you've seen Tom before, it's because he was and is an actor. I'm with the Baltimore Sun. Can I talk with you a minute? The role that prepared him, in a way, for his work on Spotlight was in the HBO series The Wire. This is Scott Templeton. He'll be working the story with me. And you played a reporter. Yep. We can't do much with the story unless we give it enough juice. Sleazy reporter, but nevertheless a reporter. That's a judgment, Leslie. That's a judgment. But Well, how, what would you say? You'd uh, say sleazy. I right? would say ambitious. Dishonest. I would say motivated. I would say cutting corners, telling falsehoods. Every last word is in my notes! Making up characters, making up dialogue. I would say I won a Pulitzer Prize, Leslie, on that show. Right here, please. And now the multi-talented McCarthy may win a real Oscar or two. I'm really excited, not just for me, but for everyone who works on the film, right? Uh, that said, look, there comes a point where I've got to stop talking about myself and stop talking about this movie, and uh, i got to get back to work. <laughs> Coming up? Depending on the day that you pick, you can have the top of the mountain to yourself. On the trail at Acadia National Park. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. All this year, we've asked our Connor Knighton to head out on the trail. It's an appreciation of our national parks in this, their centennial year. And to begin, he's out at our easternmost park, Acadia, near Bar Harbor, Maine. It's the time of year when Acadia National Park, on the coast of Maine, goes into a bit of a hibernation. Bathrooms are locked up. Popular roads close down. The lake freezes over. And the beaches of Mount Desert Island are, well, deserted, save for a few brave locals. Are you surprised that more people don't come in the winter? No, we're actually um, happy. Yeah. <laughs> Stay away. <laughs> In the summer, Acadia is packed. At just under 50,000 acres, it's one of our smallest national parks, but it's also one of the most popular. Last year, the park saw nearly 3 million visitors, and most show up between June and October. Those four months together, about 75% of all our visits occur in that sort of short season. Ranger John Kelly lives in nearby Bar Harbor, Maine. In the off season, the ice cream stores boarded up, most of the hotels closed down, and the few restaurants that stay open cater to a mostly local crowd. 
In the winter, I think a lot of the locals feel a bit relieved to have a change in pace and get to enjoy the park as more of their backyard. A century ago, a group of residents banded together to give some of their backyard to the federal government for protection, making Acadia the first national park created entirely from private land donations. Summer resident John D. Rockefeller Jr. gifted 10,000 acres to Acadia and funded the construction of a network of carless carriage roads. During peak season, the road to Cadillac Mountain, the highest point on the eastern seaboard, is typically packed full of cars and tour buses. But when the road closes... Depending on the day that you pick, you can have the top of the mountain to yourself. Taking in a Cadillac sunrise is one of the iconic experiences of the park. But it's only during the colder months when the mountaintop actually takes top billing. From early October to early March is the first place where the sun hits the eastern United States. It's an early riser's dream, a chance to catch the first rays of sun in the country before anyone else. And while most days, the long hike in the cold keeps visitors away, New Year's Day at Acadia has become a popular tradition. Every year, on January 1st, a devoted crowd huddles at the mountaintop just to get a sneak peek at the year ahead. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, honey. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service, which is why, on New Year's Day, I decided to wake up at 3 a.m., and hike a snowy mountain in the dark. All this year, I'll be headed out on the trail, traveling the country, telling some of the stories behind our national parks. I figured this was the perfect way, and the perfect day, to get an early glimpse at what 2016 might have in store. And from up here, it looks pretty spectacular. Super Bowls are anything but a one-day-a-year phenomenon in Japan. Just ask Setone. Japan, of course, is known for robots, sushi, and cherry blossoms. But something else, too. I read online before I came here. So. You read about their toilets? Yes. Indeed, in Tokyo, we found visitors marveling at Japanese toilet technology. I think they're the greatest thing in the world. Wow, Yeah. that is high praise. Yes, no, they're great. They, uh, you press a little button, it cleans your bottom, and then you walk away after it dries. The heated toilet seat is amazing. And back where we're from, Boston, a heated toilet seat wouldn't be a bad thing. Naturally, our exploration of this topic took us to the Museum of Toilets. This is the history of the toilet, how yeah. the toilet has evolved. Exactly, exactly. So starting from the squat types, to Western types. Yusuke Ikeda was our guide at this futuristic $60 million museum built by Japanese toilet manufacturer Toto. I guess you know you're in Japan when there's a special toilet for a sumo wrestler. It opened in August and drew 30,000 visitors in the first three months with attractions like General MacArthur's toilet. He, of course, oversaw the American occupation of Japan after World War II. All of these components are in a toilet? Exactly. It's quite complex. Yeah, it's quite complex. Ikeda, who's in international sales, extolled the virtues of the technology. It's going to wash your bottoms and wash your bottoms softly. 
In addition to the heated seat, the lid opens and closes automatically. No more leaving the seat up. Yeah. There are deodorizers, an antiseptic mist, a blow dryer, and bidet. Ikeda admitted his favorite function is the water massage. You can change where it comes out, where it hits exactly, you. Exactly, exactly. Toto, which dominates the Japanese market, led us into their factory. It takes a week to make one toilet, and craftsmen can spend three to four hours per unit smoothing out the surface by hand. At the top end, they can sell for almost $5,000 each. Why is toilet technology so advanced here in Japan? Japanese people really like to clean to everything. Cleanliness is important. Yeah, cleanliness is very important. Were other ministers surprised that toilets was going to be an issue for you? That was surprising for the first time. At the Diet, Japan's parliament, we met legislator Haruko Aramura, who took up toilets as one of her political issues. You've been called the Minister of Toilets. <laughs> Is that a title you're proud of? <laughs> partially, partially. Arimura argues they showcase Japanese innovation and hospitality. And advanced toilets are part of venue planning for the upcoming 2020 Olympics. Arimura believes Japan could lead on issues of global sanitation and fighting disease. Everyone, everywhere of the world, has to use restroom every day, every single day, beyond national boundary, beyond language, beyond religion. Regardless how rich or poor you are, you have to use a restroom. The Japanese are quite open about this topic from a young age. Youngsters donned subject-appropriate excrement caps at this Tokyo exhibition. Kids could climb into a giant toilet replica and slide on in, triggering a flushing sound. <laughs> and, uh, this the is, problem uh, is Japanese toilets can be so advanced they can bewilder tourists. The seat is quite hot, so like I jump off and I'm like, oh God. To increase this knowledge, Toto has tried publicity stunts, like this converted motorcycle toilet. But nothing may sell a toilet better than just trying it. You don't know Japanese toilets if you haven't experienced one. You can only look at a picture, but the real experience is by far better than the picture will tell you. Toilets may one day be able to check your health and vital signs, or even generate electricity. In most of the world, the humble toilet hasn't changed much in centuries. But that's hardly the case here. Okay, good, good, good. Just ahead, if I've only got a limited amount of time left, why would I want to spend it feeling sorry for myself? Steve Hartman with a coach who doesn't know a word quit. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. The Mr. Lucky of this year's Super Bowl may strike you as an unlikely one until you get to know him the way Steve Hartman has. I'm, I'm good. All week, Carolina Panthers special teams coach Bruce DeHaven 
has been deflecting. I'm just kind of going to refrain from answering a whole lot of questions about all that. Telling reporter. For me, it's a non-story. After reporter. This is not a story. That there were more important things to talk about this past week than him. And I appreciate your interest. It's not a story. But in the one interview he did sit down for this week, I learned Bruce DeHaven knows a lot more about what it takes to win at football than what makes an important story. Well, in terms of what's happened to me, if I've only got a limited amount of time left, why would I want to spend it feeling sorry for myself? Sit. Last spring, at the age of 66, Bruce was diagnosed with an incurable form of prostate cancer. Obviously, that diagnosis would have driven many people into retirement, but not Bruce. In the end, I, I wanted to coach. and uh, Why does coaching win out? I just love coaching. Coaching's teaching. I mean, for whatever reason, it's, it's in my blood. I mean, I'll probably cry after this ball game just because we're not going to have another week of practice. Set. In fact, he loves practice so much, he actually scheduled his cancer treatments around it. it. Never go. missed a single day of work all season. Some guys got to work for a living, don't they? Yeah. I find myself lingering after practice, thinking about, I want to make a little picture here in my mind in case I'm not doing this soon. He knows this could be his last year. And given that perspective, you'd think the Super Bowl itself wouldn't matter as much. But don't talk to Bruce about the prospect of losing. I d wouldn't even want to think about that. You're telling me it still matters. The game still matters who wins and loses. We're all in the same position. None of us are going to get out of this, this thing alive. And, uh, and if you can get out with the Super Bowl ring, all the better. That is way better. <laughs> yeah. way better. As you've probably figured out by now, Bruce is, and always has been, one of the nicest guys in the NFL. Players like wide receiver Corey Brown adore him. He's like a grandpa to me. You know what I'm saying? He's a guy that I care about. The difference is, this season, everyone has been going out of his way to tell him that. When Lou Gehrig said, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world, I mean, I can understand what he meant. You, you just have no idea some, how you've touched people sometimes. And if it hadn't been for this, maybe I'd never have known this. So says the man with no story to tell. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. Coming up, actor Jeff Daniels from the newsroom to the Broadway stage. Mockingbird, don't everybody have you heard? It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Jeff Daniels played it strictly for laughs in the 1994 film Dumb and Dumber. Now he's on Broadway and talking with our Anthony Mason. With his name up in lights on Broadway, Jeff Daniels is, at age 60, busier than he's ever been. The last year, it seems like you've been almost everywhere. Yeah, there's been a lot of me, a lot of me. I'm sorry, what's your name again? Teddy. He plays the NASA director trying to bring stranded astronaut Matt Damon back from Mars in The Martian. We'll do our best. Mark dies if you don't. The story of why and how you left Apple, which is quickly becoming mythologized, isn't true. In Steve Jobs, he plays CEO John Scully, who's forced to fire the Apple founder. They believe you're no longer necessary to this company. 
And in Blackbird, which began previews on Broadway this past week, he plays a middle-aged man reliving an earlier affair with a 12-year-old girl. Not you were looking at me at the barbecue. No! I saw you. I wasn't. I felt you. I, I looked at you. I wasn't looking. It's a stunning turnaround for an actor who only a few years ago feared he was finished. You were seriously thinking not long ago of quitting acting? Well, I wanted to quit before I was fired or let go or dismissed or over. Then Aaron Sorkin called and then the career didn't die much to my uh, uh, happiness. <laughs> The health care law hasn't taken effect yet. TARP was signed into law by George W. Bush. Name me the freedoms that In 2012, Sorkin, the creator and writer of The Newsroom, offered him the part of anchorman Will McAvoy in the HBO series. You, uh, sorority girl. The pilot included this pivotal three-minute speech. There is absolutely no evidence to support the statement that we're the greatest country in the world. We're seventh in literacy. Were you kind of nervous about that? On the way to the set, Aaron pulled me aside and said, just, you know, I, as important as this speech is to you, it's twice as important to me. So, <laughs> but I'd waited decades for that speech. Decades. Of whom and this is your shot, is so hit it. Student, but you nonetheless are, without a doubt, a member of the worst period, generation, period, ever, period. So when you ask what makes us the greatest country in the world, I don't know what the f*** you're talking about. Yosemite? Daniels won an Emmy for the newsroom and says he finally understood the advice he was given years ago. Tommy Toon pulled me aside one day and he said, I know you can act it. I need you to star in it. Daniels' career began in Chelsea, Michigan, his hometown, where he and his wife Kathleen raised their three kids and still live. He started acting in high school. In 1976, he dropped out of college and bravely set out for New York. That had to be kind of overwhelming, coming to New York at 21. Yeah, I, um, I was ready to leave every single day. What's the subject? But he stuck it out. And in 1983, the turning point came when he landed a role in terms of endearment. You're going to have to take my word for it. You, you have no other choice. I was the unlikable sap coward who cheated on Deborah Winger while she was dying of cancer. That's a tough career thing to kind of come up and over. I'm honest, dependable, courageous, romantic, and a great kisser. And I'm real. Let's go. Daniels quickly gained a reputation as a versatile actor, but nothing prepared audiences for this performance in 1994. I hope you're not using the toilet, it's broken. Huh? in the surprise blockbuster, Dumb and Dumber. No, I was just shaving! <laughs> That's gonna be the first clip that plays next to your name. At the funeral? How do you feel about that? Um, well, there's a, there's a strange kind of pride. <laughs> I love the choice. I took... You love, the, the, you love the choice because everybody told you not to make the choice. Everybody told me not to do it. Um, you, you, we have you on the serious, important actor trail. Yeah. And, and the one thing that the agents said that, that made me want to do it more was that, Jeff, to be honest, Jim's going to blow you off the screen. Undaunted, Daniels did a screen test with Jim Carrey. 
Jim just looked at me and did that. I said, oh. And then we, it was over. Where did you pull that face from? Off a of gym. Act, react. <laughs> did it change your career? Yeah, what happened because of Dumb and Dumber was um, they knew my name. I would go through airports and it wasn't, what's your name? It's Jeff Daniels. That name is now on the marquee of Broadway's Belasco Theater with co-star Michelle Williams. So I was telling Michelle the other day, I said, yeah, it's hard and it's brutal, but we get to do this. This is the garden and we're Springsteen. It doesn't get any bigger than this. Actually, Jeff Daniels has a little Springsteen in him. For more than a decade, he's been a touring musician in between acting jobs. It's a hard road I'm traveling, but I come too far to turn myself around. And I do enjoy it because there's no editor, there's no director, there's no anything else except me. All right, here we go. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going where I've never gone before. This past fall, Daniels went out for five weeks with a backing band led by his 31-year-old son, Ben, who he taught to play the guitar as a teenager. I gotta imagine going out on the road now with your son is oh. pretty great. You never know how kids are gonna turn out. <laughs> you know, is, is prison, I mean, what, you just don't know. Yeah. Uh, anything with, north of prison is good. Anything north of prison. <laughs> Of all his great performances over the past year, none would mean more than this one on their last night in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It ain't the fortune, it ain't the fame. Jeff and Ben Daniels sang a duet, a song the father wrote for his sons. On stage or on the silver screen, no, it ain't where I thought it would be. It's in that young boy looking up at me. And it was, I'll never forget it. It's a trip of a lifetime. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of time, just a matter of time, till you're who you grew up to be. I told him that when I hugged him the last show. I just whispered to him, it was a trip of a lifetime. Lucky me. Ahead? Real panthers? That helps them grab a hold of a prey as they crush their skull. Versus real broncos? They'll turn around and kick them. <laughs> Welcome to CBS Sunday Morning Super Bowl Central. I'm Mo Rocca, and I've got the latest on the matchup everyone's talking about. The Broncos versus the Panthers. Wait, 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 stop, stop everything. Who are these guys? I said Broncos and Panthers. That's more like it. A panther in the Western Hemisphere is just another name for a black jaguar, 
a rarity among an already endangered species, and the fourth most popular team mascot in America. Alan Rabinowitz is an expert on big cats. I think it's the most powerful symbol a sports team can possibly have because it's not just about strength and size and aggression. It's about thought and cunning. Everything about them says that I am the top predator in all of Americas. These guys are the third largest cat behind tiger and lion. In America, they are the biggest cat. They Farshid Merdadfar is a curator at the Memphis Zoo, where we met 13-year-old Maya. When you see the tail kind of twitching a little bit, there's a little bit of excitement going on over there. So she's a little bit excited, but she's relaxed. She's a happy cat right now. She's a happy cat. Would it ever be possible to go and stroke her? I would, I would definitely advise against any bodily contact with this animal. Just like your house cat at home, they need to sharpen their claws because that helps them grab a hold of a prey as they crush their skull. Crushing your skull is just one injury you might sustain riding a bronco, which is a horse that's been bred to buck. Can you walk amongst the panthers like this? <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. Jim Gay is the producer of the Fort Worth Stock Show and Rodeo. Horses are just superior athletes. The stamina they have, the, the agility, it's what conquered the West as a horse. But these guys here aren't all guys. They're male, female. This would get into a little difficult subject, but there are some that are, that are gilded, which would be... Castrated. Correct. And they are the majority of the horses. So why don't they call the team the Denver Geldings? <laughs> well, they, I don't think none of them football players are. <laughs> so when these animals go paw to hoof, how do they compare? When it comes to speed, no contest. The Panthers will dance and prance past those Broncos faster than you can say glue factory. But what the Broncos lack in horsepower, they make up for in sheer mass. Don't buck with these guys. So what are these animals eating? The Broncos keep it healthy with hay and grains, while the Panthers eat whatever they can hunt down, including horses. They'll destroy them. They'll turn around and kick them. But don't count those Broncos out, says two-time bareback bronc riding champion Evan Jane. I got kicked in the face. Um, I broke my uh, wrist, both of them. Broke my back, ankle. So yeah, it's it's long list. I'm a Bronco. I'm trying to tackle this Panther. What does it do to me? It's so gonna she... go for your throat here, or it's gonna actually try to go for the bat for the cervical vertebrae. Okay, I think that's right a penalty there. though. I think that's a penalty. Okay. So, so the cat may be top dog there. here. But Alan Rabinowitz hopes today's media circus has some benefit for these teams' namesakes. Anybody who uses cats, uses any animal, frankly, because those cats represent what's great to them, they have a responsibility to help the actual animal in the wild. Tens of thousands of people around the world can very quickly record their story. Next. You decided to build a space company. Why? The man behind the TED Talks. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Whatever the topic, whenever an expert gives a TED Talk, millions around the world want to hear what was said.
which is why our David Pogue of Yahoo Tech is talking, Ted, with us. Every February, 1,500 people travel to Vancouver, Canada for one of the most famous conferences in the world. They sit in this custom-built theater for four days, listening to talks by famous or brilliant people. No talk is more than 18 minutes long. Tickets cost $8,500, and it's sold out every year. This is the TED Conference. TED stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. The conference begins again next week, this time with speakers like Al Gore, Norman Lear, and singer John Legend. We are also influenced by our nonverbals. But if you've ever seen a TED Talk, it's probably not because you went to the conference. It's probably because you've seen one of the talk videos. Imagine that you were a bloodhound dog. Today, three million people watch TED videos every day on TED.com, YouTube, Netflix, and even on airplanes. About a billion views a year. And it's all for free. These talks spread because people want to share them. They're excited by the ideas. Chris Anderson is the curator of TED. He owns and runs it. He's a believer in TED's slogan, Ideas Worth Spreading. But you sell tickets to a conference. Right. And now you're giving it away. Right. So that part was definitely scary. But the effect of doing this, of giving away our content, was to dramatically increase the demand for the conference. It was surprising and wonderful. But there's another TED effect. The effect giving a talk has on the speaker. TED speakers come from all walks of life. They're not all household names. They just have ideas worth spreading. Even I've given a TED talk or two. Duke professor Dan Ariely has spoken at TED seven times. Are you ever recognized uh, in public from somebody who's seen the the talks online? Yeah, Um, maybe once a day on average. People come and they say, I really like the research. It really touches me. Uh, Or social progress expert Michael Green. We've got people who are saying, you are a serious partner we want to work with because we know this is a credible idea because it's been on the TED stage. In 2012, author Susan Cain gave a TED Talk about the power of introverts. Introverts were pretty excellent just as they were. That's been watched online about 13 million times. You know, you have a TED Talk and then suddenly everyone's inviting you to speak. My kids have now been to 10 countries. So in the, in the parallel universe where you had not spoken at TED, yeah. where would you and your book and your life be? It came out three years ago and it's still now on the bestseller list. I don't think with TED, without TED that that would have been the case. And, and so just relax your hand. What happens? If you're a TED speaker, you're well aware uh, that a great talk could catapult your career because forward. The brain has to do so it. the pressure is on to put together uh, an amazing perfect. talk. Thank you guys for being such a good sport. Speakers are now taking a week, sometimes months, of preparation time to really think hard about what they want to say and how they want to say it. And nowadays, your staff works with them to do this preparation, right? Yes, that's right. Of course, if the TED staff tweaks every talk, the risk is that they'll become formulaic. Compostization. In fact, TED Talks have become so distinctive that they've been parodied by TheOnion.com and Saturday Night Live. I grew up in a modest family. We were so poor, my mama went to McDonald's and put a milkshake on layaway. Now, you know that ain't right. 
we laugh along with everyone else at the kind of the cliched, you know, let me move you. We don't, we don't like that so much. So you're, you're not still hearing that, that the structure is becoming too similar? No, we, we hear that from people who haven't looked at a lot of them recently. Ah. There's a, a lot more variety than there's ever been. Nowadays, TED runs more than just one conference. There's also TED Global, TED Active, TED Women, TED Youth, and TED India. We've got this giant fusion generator in the sky called the sun. Um, and we just need to tap a little bit of that energy. For then there are the 6,000 conferences that TED has let know, other people run. Know. That program is called TEDx. And I'm here to present a change in people's thoughts and attitudes. And for the next generation, there are TED-Ed Clubs, a free high school program encouraging students to create their own talks. When you watch the videos of these talks, it's so exciting to see some little wallflower kid come on with confidence and, and share something that they're passionate about. Put together all of these talks and gatherings and videos, and you've got an outfit with a huge impact. But according to curator Chris Anderson, the TED effect still isn't big enough. There's still work to be done. Sharing of knowledge is as important a task as humanity has, and we, we want to continue to figure out how to help do that in whatever way we can. And that's, that's, a, that's a huge and exciting quest over the next few years. Time now to take note. The ocean liner SS United States may yet sail again. The pride of America's passenger fleet, at its debut in 1952, the United States has been idled and rusting at a Philadelphia dry dock for years. Now, this past Thursday, Crystal Cruises announced a tentative plan to refurbish it at a cost of $700 million. And we learned as well of the death of Maurice White, the founder of the band Earth, Wind & Fire. Named for the elements of White's own astrological sign, Earth, Wind & Fire mixed jazz and rock and blues and soul in a style all its own winning six Grammys along the way. Maurice White was 74. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.